you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Acts 26. This is Paul's last defense, and then he's going to be uh, put on a ship and sent to Rome. And uh, so we're coming to the end of these defenses uh, he'll make. And for reasons that you'll see here shortly, I think this is the most risky defense. It's because of uh, where he is and who he is speaking to and who's in the room with Paul when he uh, makes this defense. And what you'll see is that his audience may change, but his allegiance to Jesus does not. The stakes may be high, but he is uh, courageous and bold to fully and uh, rightfully defend the faith of the one uh, that he loves. And so join me in reading Acts 26. And so Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, even as they earnestly worship him night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus, with the authority and commission of the chief priests. And at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said to me, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and the place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and throughout the, all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass that the Christ must suffer, and that be, by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, 
Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I'm persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with him. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Amen. Let's pray. Under Lord, thank you for your word and thank you for being a speaking God. Thank you that you speak through creation so that men and women are without an excuse. You have revealed yourself to the world through things created. The heavens declare the glory of God. Your eternal power, divine nature are clearly seen in things that we see day in and day out. And yet creation does not tell us what you're like. Only your word does this. Creation does not save us. Only special revelation draws us up into the story of redemption. And so as your word is proclaimed, as your word is read, do a mighty work in our hearts and lives. Make us more like Jesus, we pray. Amen. This is Paul's fifth defense, and as I mentioned previously, it's the most risky. It's the most risky because he's in front of a man named Agrippa. And our Bibles say Agrippa, but his full name is Herod Agrippa II. And that ought to ring a bell. He is the great-great-grandson of Herod the Great. He's the grandson of Herod the Tetrarch, Antipas, who beheaded John the Baptist in the Gospels. He's the son of Herod Agrippa I, who we met in Acts chapter 12, who killed James, the brother of John, and was trying to kill Peter. This is the great-great-grandson. He stands in the line of powerful and evil kings who had violently persecuted God's church. You'll notice in this passage that there are multiple people in the room But over and over and over again, Paul clearly says, but I'm really talking to you, Agrippa. Look right there in verse 25. For the Jew, for for the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. Look at verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets with a capital B? Do you really believe? Because I know that you believe a little bit. Look at verse 3. You are familiar with all of our customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Why would Paul know that King Agrippa is familiar with everything he's talking about? Because his daddy and his granddaddy and his great granddaddy were all on this scene in opposition to the kingdom of God. So Agrippa in this passage, he knows about Jesus. He knows about the Jews. He knows about the kingdom of God. But Herod is not the only one in this room. These events take place 
on the same day that Paul is put before them. If you go back to Acts 25, verse 23, it's on this day when King Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and with all the prominent men of the city. Now think about that contrast. Think about King Agrippa, Bernice, pomp, royal robes, in this room with all the important people, all the prominent people, that, that's the setting. And then look at the passage about Paul. What is Paul doing? Well, one, Paul has been in prison for two years. And so he probably stinks a little bit. He's definitely not dressed in what they're dressed in. And he's in there in chains. And so you got this man who's been a prisoner who's placed in the presence of the prominent and the powerful. And we ought to be on the edge of our seats. What will this prisoner say to these prominent, prosperous, powerful people? Who's the most famous person you've ever been around? I'm, I'm not going to ask you to say it out loud, but I've been around some pretty famous people. And my palms sweat. I'm kind of nervous. I kind of want to act like I belong in this room. I want an autograph, right? I want to take a picture and show y'all that I know this person, right? (laughs) I'm going to use flattery. I might name drop to make, you know, like really, like what temptations begin to surface when you're in the presence of the prominent, the powerful, and the prosperous And here is what you see that is consistent with Paul. It doesn't matter his audience. It doesn't matter if the king can do this and it's off with his head. It doesn't matter how much money they have, how much status they have. The apostle Paul says the same thing, even though his audience changes. He is not swayed by their power or their prominence. He commends King Jesus to them. And I think that's something that we can kind of grow in, that when we're around people who have more than what we have, who are more powerful than we are, who have more resources, more beauty, more talent, more brains, more anything. The temptation is to cower back in fear and to feel inferior. And what you see in Paul is he is not concerned with that audience. He is speaking on behalf of the audience of another. And because he knows who he is in Jesus, because he has been commended by Christ to God, because he will rule and inherit the earth and reign with Jesus, because he is suffering for the sake of Jesus, he walks in this room and he courageously speaks the truth. I don't know about you, but I long to grow in that. I long to grow in courage and hope and confidence. 
There are some things in this passage that I, I think are helpful for us. And here's the first thing. Here's a glorious truth. The powerful, prosperous, and the prominent, they need Jesus. That's a glorious truth about God's kingdom. The powerful, prosperous, and prominent, they still need Jesus. Now, if you've been tracking with the book of Acts, Acts has sort of shown us how the gospel bears fruit among the outsiders, among the poor, among the vulnerable, among the marginalized. You start to see this, these widows who need food, and because they have come to know Jesus, Jesus cares for them. You see people who don't have clothing and food and shelter, and so some people begin to sell extra things so that those who don't have these things, and so you see the gospel start to break out in the book of Acts, Gentiles and Jews, but it has a, a special sort of gravitas towards those on the fringes. And we would make the mistake to think that that is only where Jesus is on the move. There was a wealthy man named Joseph of Arimathea who asked for Jesus' body. When the gospel went to Philippi, was a wealthy woman named Lydia who opened her home. When Jesus had his earthly ministry, there were others who supported him. It was the powerful centurion that Jesus said, I've not found faith like this man in all of Israel. Jesus is an equal opportunity savior. And, 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 and that's what you hear Paul saying in verse 29. Paul, look at verse 29. Paul says, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me on this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Now, who is with him on this day? the prominent, the powerful, and the prosperous in this extravagant hall. And Paul says, I wish that all of y'all would come to know Jesus. <laughs> you know, there's been a buzz in church planting around the poor and around the marginalized. You can raise some money doing that. And you can go. But we would make the grave mistake mistake to think that those who throw pompous parties don't need Jesus. Jesus is an equal opportunity savior because sin is an equal opportunity assassin. And you see the godlessness of these prominent, powerful people, and, and, and it's easy to miss but, but, but Acts 25 tells us that, that and this chapter, that Herod, that, that Herod Agrippa is with this woman named Bernice. Well, who is Bernice? That's his sister. And they're living together as husband and wife. Doesn't that sound a lot like what his granddaddy did, who took his brother's wife? And had John the Baptist beheaded because John the Baptist called him to task? That what you're starting to see is that the most powerful, the most prosperous are some of the most ungodly people on the planet in the Bible. And so we, we have to stop the narrative that poor Jackson needs Jesus. That's true. That is really true. 
But if you rightly look at the Bible, the powerful, the prominent, and the prosperous, both here and abroad, need Jesus as well. They may not resort to violence and steal your car, but it's the prosperous who embezzle money and create shell companies and work the good old boy network to fatten their pockets. They may not sell drugs, but they got friends who are doctors who write illicit prescriptions. They may not have their names plastered on TV because they know how to lawyer up. They just do a better job at hiding behind their power and their prosperity. And here is what you see in the Bible. And God loves them. And he longs for them. And he weeps over them. And he sees through the veneer, he sees their need, even when they learn how to disguise it so that no one else does. God is an equal opportunity savior. He desires, according to Paul, 1 Timothy, he says, pray for Kings who are in high places, this is good. It's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. Pray for those in high positions because God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. This is a glorious truth that Jesus loves the powerful and the prosperous and the popular. Here's the second thing. Here's a glorious tool of Jesus. And here's the tool. It's the providence of God who puts his prophets, lowercase p, in those places. So y'all track with, that's a long point, but track with me. A glorious truth. The prominent, prosperous, powerful need Jesus. Here's the glorious tool of Jesus. It's providence. God providentially puts his prophets in those places. Here's what I mean. Look, if you have a decent Bible, uh, study Bible, then I want you to get accustomed to, I call it mining God's Word, but a good study Bible is, is man, like, I, I, it's, the, the, it's the best investment you can make to go deep into God's Word. And here's what I mean, that when you read this section of Acts, my Bible has like the letters O and M and R, and, 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 and they put them in particular places in this section. So, for example, at, at verse 16, it says, but rise upon your feet. My Bible has a letter M, and that M takes me to the Old Testament. It takes me to Ezekiel 2.1. If you turn to Ezekiel 2.1, here's what Ezekiel 2 will say. And the Lord said to me, son of man, stand on your feet. And I will speak to you. Go down to them. Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to the nation of rebels who rebelled against me. And so what you have in Ezekiel 2 is God telling Ezekiel, stand up, stand at attention. I'm sending you somewhere. Now, lay that on top of what's happening to Paul. And what scholars are saying is these commissionings are the same. All right. Verse 17 and I will be delivering you from the people and the Gentiles. My study Bible has an O, and it points me back to Jeremiah 1.8. Well, what in the world is going on in Jeremiah 1.8? 
It's when the Lord told Jeremiah, do not say that you're young. Where I send you, you will go and you will speak and do not be afraid of them for I will deliver you. And so when, when, when Jesus tells Paul, I'm sending you and I will deliver you, it's like Jeremiah's promise. Not only am I commissioning you like Ezekiel, but you go with my divine protection like Jeremiah. And look at verse 18. My Bible has an R. And it says, look, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Well, where does that R take you back to? It takes you back to Isaiah, Isaiah 35. Isaiah sees into the future when the world will be filled with gladness and the earth filled with glory. Those with anxious hearts will have strength. The eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap and the tongues of the mute will sing for joy. Well, the question becomes, who is that prophet? That Jeremiah sees. You and I know who that prophet is. It's Jesus, because in Luke 4, Jesus opens a scroll reading from Isaiah, and Jesus says, Today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they wanted to stone him. Why? Because Jesus was making the claim that I'm the suffering servant. I'm the one who will bear the iniquity of the world. I'm the one who will open eyes so that the blind will see spiritually and physically. I'm the one who will bind up the wounds. I'm the one that will cure lepers. I'm the one who will make those who can't see here. I'm the one who will be the Lord of salvation and will give life. Now, lay that all together. What in the world is happening here? Here's what's happening. Jesus is commissioning Paul. And he's telling Paul, stand up. I'm setting you apart. You're my prophet. Secondly, when you go out there and your life is on the line, you don't be afraid of them. Because I'm going to protect you, just like I told Jeremiah. And as far as opening the eyes of the blind, yeah, Paul, that's about me. But what Jesus is actually doing is breathtaking. He's actually telling Paul, let me let you in on a secret. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one who opens eyes. <laughs> but guess what? I'm commissioning you to be like me. Not like Ezekiel, not like Jeremiah, at this particular point, you're like me. You're like me when you stand before princes and powers and the powerful. You're like me. And when your words go out, even though I'm the Lord of salvation, even though I will do the converting, I will use you. You catch that? And so the magic verse in all of this is right there in verse 16, 17. I will deliver you from the people and from the Gentiles and underline to whom I send you. Oh, so why is Paul in this room with the prominent and with the powerful and with the prosperous? Why is he ultimately there? He's there because Jesus sent him there through bitter providence. Yeah, Paul, you might have to go to prison, but I want them to hear the truth. Yeah, Paul, you're going to sit there for two years, but trust me, baby, I got this. 
Yeah, Paul, I know you want to get to Rome, but I'm going to slow it down and make sure these prominent people hear my messenger before they send you off. Yeah, Paul, you got setbacks. Yeah, you're getting beatings. Yeah, you're getting flogging. But behind all of this, I am the Lord of salvation. I am providentially protecting and sending my little prophets to do my word. Have you ever pondered that? That we are all in various kinds of relationships with people who have more power, more prominence, more prosperity than us. This is relative, right? This starts on, on a kid level. Our kids are in classrooms with teachers who are smarter. Our high schoolers go to school with kids who are more popular. We go to college and we're in the room with professors who are more prominent. They've written books and we're unpublished. And you work in companies where people make more money than you and they have more cars than you and they have more resources than you. And you have bosses who lord their power over you and you have governors and kings and presidents and principals who have all of this power and all of this money and all of this fame and all of this prominence. And here's the secret, Christian. When King Jesus puts you in relationship and proximity to those types of people, you make the mistake to think that you're inferior and you have nothing they need. We're all kings of the Most High God. We're all priests of the Most High God, not just Levites. We're all small prophets of the Most High God, not just Ezekiel. And this is why we use the Heidelberg Catechism today, because it nails it. It nails Jesus, who is called the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed. He is the ultimate prophet. He is the ultimate king. He is the ultimate priest. But what does it mean to be a Christian? That, that this question right here, Paul, do you want to persuade me to be a Christian? Well, if you were to ask Paul, what does it mean to be a Christian? You know what Paul would say? It means that I'm a little king. I'm a reign with Jesus one day, right? It means that I'm a little prophet. I'm not the big prophet who does the converting, but I'm a little prophet that my truth as I bring the gospel to bear to kings and princes and whomever, if Jesus is pleased to open eyes, he will do it and he will do it through me. And I'm the priest. I'm going to offer my, my body as a living sacrifice in gratitude. Do you see who we are in Jesus? This is a blessing of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon all flesh. Men, women, children, boys, girls. When King Jesus arose and ascended and poured out his flesh, his spirit, he did more than just save you. He's given you and I new identities. And therefore, we have to look at our relationships, where we live, where we work, who has one up on us, right? Who, who has one up on us and does not know Jesus. You should never, ever, ever be discouraged by what they have. You have found the treasure you are known by Christ. You will rule and reign with him. 
This world may never know you, but Jesus knows your name and the number of hairs on your head. You are not inferior. You are empowered and encouraged and providentially placed in those places to speak the truth and love. What would happen if God's people rose to that occasion? and viewed ourselves as prophets sent. What would happen if presidents and world dictators and CEOs and school principals and college presidents and athletes and entertainers and the presidents of SGA and the most popular people that we can think of, what would happen if Christians bent their ear and talked to them about King Jesus rather than cowering in fear. Do you think the world would be different? You see, I have a suspicion that we all, and I'm, I'm indicting myself because I get nervous around powerful. <laughs> like I, just, I just get nervous, right? But what would happen if, if, if we did that, if we lived like that? See, I have a sneaking suspicion that we suffer from what has been called a bystander effect. It's a sociological phenomenon that says that, that every, when you have this crisis, this need, that if you put a lot of people around it, that everybody begins to displace personal responsibility, assuming that someone else is, is taking care of this. And so the, this comes from this uh, murder that happened in New York where Kitty Genovese was stabbed. And rumor has it that 37 people heard her crying for help. But because so many people heard her crying for help, no one actually called the cops and she actually ended up dying. Now, the New York Times got some things wrong, right? But the principle there is this that when you have multiple people around, that we begin to diffuse responsibility and assume that somebody, well, somebody else is talking to that CEO. Somebody else is talking to that wealthy person. Somebody else is talking to that. And in fact, no one's doing anything. We're all scurrying. Maybe this is a call for us to repent. The last thing, beloved, is a glorious topic, glorious topics to speak about in their presence. I'm not saying that we ought to be strivers. I'm not saying that we need to be the people in the room where it happens. I'm not saying that, you know, you need to go start a ministry to reach NBA players, right? I mean, maybe, right? I'm not saying that you need to start a ministry to state. Maybe. All I'm saying is if we trust that King Jesus has made us little prophets and we trust that he providentially puts us in rooms with people who are more powerful, more prominent, more prosperous. All I'm saying is, man, like, can we at least acknowledge that there's a responsibility to King Jesus, that he has not uh, done these things haphazardly? that he uniquely knows our boundaries and our times of habitation and where we live and work and play and rest. All I'm saying is like, can we at least acknowledge that man, like God can use me. Well, if, if you're there, what should you be talking about? 
to these people who don't know the, don't know the Lord. Here are four quick things. The ultimate aim of life is resurrection from the dead. The ultimate problem in, in life is that we're blind to this reality and human wisdom or accomplishment is of no avail. The ultimate need in life is a life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And the ultimate response in life is bowing the knee and believing the gospel. That this is the essence of what Paul is doing. Now let me show you that, it, that the ultimate aim in life, what Paul is doing in this room, is reminding these powerful, prominent people that your life is a failure if you don't find the resurrection and the life. I don't care how much you have. If you are not prepared to spend the next day after you die in eternity, your life is wasted. Now, when Paul is on trial, he keeps telling them, your honor, this is why I'm on trial. He says, he says, look, I was not just a Jew, but a Pharisee. He says, this is why I'm on trial. I'm on trial because of the hope that I have embraced. Well, Paul, what's the hope and the promise of God that you have embraced? Notice how Paul shifts and says, look, he says, why is it uncommon to any of you that God raises the dead? Right. So that's the clue right there. Paul is being tried because of his conviction that God promised that we would be raised and the raising of the dead has happened in and through King Jesus. And they want to deny Jesus. They want to deny his resurrection. That's why I'm on trial. He later says the prophets and Moses, they testify that the Messiah must suffer and must die and must be the first to be raised from the dead. He even says, look, let me tell you a secret behind the 12 tribes. What those 12 tribes are doing night and day is really for resurrection. Now, why? What do you mean? How do you know this? Because if you have the right lens, you begin to see that God's plan from the beginning was that death would not have the final say. He told Abraham, you will have this land how long? Forever. Forever, ever. Forever, ever. He told them when they kicked them out of the tree, out of the garden, don't let them come back lest they touch and they, they sin and then they touch and eat of the tree and they live forever. We get glimpses of Enoch who is taken away. You see Elijah taken up. You hear Job saying, I know my Redeemer lives and at last he will stand on the earth and I will see him. That what you start to see is when you go back and read the Old Testament that, that, that the purpose of living, the reason you're breathing right here, right now, is that while you're here, right here, right now, you and I might find our way to God and thus be reunited with him in the next life forever. And so when Paul is talking about the resurrection and talking about, he says, that's the ultimate hope. The ultimate hope and aim in life is to gain eternal life. That's why they have me on trial. It's because they think it's found in another, but it's not. It's found in the one who is the resurrection and the life. And the ultimate problem is sin. And that's in verses 9 through 12. This is Paul, and I love it here because Paul, in the, in the company of these people, 
he is not making himself look good. He actually makes himself look really bad, right? He goes down, right? He says, look, now look at it with me. He says, my manner of life from youth, I was a Jew and I was a rabbi and I stand on trial for the hope. And look at verse nine. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus. I locked up the saints. I cast my lots when they were put to death. I voted against them. I punished them often in synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and enraging fury against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. The key phrase is verse nine. I myself was convinced. You hear that? What Paul is actually telling them is I was blinded by religion and I could not see that there is a righteousness of God that is apart from works that comes through faith in Christ. And here I am, a Jew of the Jews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and my wisdom was of no avail. And I think he's telling them, your power is of no avail. Your prominence is of no avail. Your prosperity is of no avail. Those things you are trusting in are blinding you from seeing the face of God in Jesus. And what you ultimately need is that ultimate problem handled, and that is your sin. And the ultimate need is forgiveness and a place among those sanctified in Jesus. Paul talks about people being in the grip of Satan in verse 18, and he is sent to free them that they might receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those sanctified by faith in Jesus. And I think that phrase is important because right now they think the best place to be is in that room. And what, G what Paul is saying is there's a place better than that. The place that's better than all of that is to be in this number of those who have been pardoned who have been cleansed, who've been made righteous in Jesus, that's the place where you want to be. You need forgiveness. One came who was poor, who became poor, who was rich, who had all power and became weak, who was prominent and cast all things aside. He actually had all of this and more, and he laid it aside to make people like you and me who are poor to make us rich. Paul is pressing in that what they need more than anything is King Jesus. And the ultimate response to this king in verse 20, it's faith. What must you do? You must repent and believe the gospel. They should repent and turn to God. Paul is pressing in. He says, Agrippa, do you believe? Are you a Christian? He's pressing in, calling them to repent, calling them to turn. Have y'all thought about that? That some of these conversations about death and why they're alive 
and what they will do the day after they die, what will happen to their power and their prominence and their wealth, right? Having these types of conversations, it might actually save their souls. These are some categories that Paul gives us to think about. Now, this passage ends, and I'm about to end, but it doesn't seem like it's fruitful, does it? The king rose, and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man has done nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. You see no response to the pressing in, the presentation of the gospel. But here's the question. Is this a wasted defense? And the answer is no. You see, prophets are not responsible for the outcome. Only for being faithful. I imagine that this is painful for Paul to clearly disclose the truth. And none not come. But I also imagine that it's glorious. Because even in the rejection of Jesus, there is room for the Christian to rejoice. You want to know why? Because apart from the grace of God, that will be us. We will be blind in our sins. And we would have ears that wouldn't hear. And we would move the topic on and talk about something else rather than to bow the knee to Jesus. And so even when you proclaim the good news, even if it doesn't feel like they respond, you can still walk away rejoicing. God, that would have been me apart from your grace. We're going to sing that. In this hymn, and I think this whole hymn is about both. It's about this desire for the church to grow, this desire to see people come to faith, and this deep gratitude for while many reject, the Lord has rescued us. Let's pray. Father, we turn our hearts uh, to your word and pray that your spirit would write the eternal truths thereof upon it. Father, I pray for those who are weak and those who are fearful that you would give us courage, courage in the spirit and courage uh, by your word. Father, our hearts break. I know mine do specifically of, of, of numerous people that I know who have the world and it appears that they are forfeiting their souls. I think we all could know people that way. And so, Father, we commend them to you and pray that you will use us as you providentially send us out in these places, in these relationships, to do what Paul does, to not be respecter of persons, but to openly and graciously and to lovingly speak the truth of the Messiah. Do this for your glory, we pray. Amen. Let's sing.